Radio Shouty. So I remember the first show we did in Atlanta. Back in the day, we was opening up for Mac Ten, and um, we had on black khaki jeans. Mm-hmm. I mean, khaki pants, black shirts that said Three Six Mafia. We come from Memphis. We had Jerry curls and everything. <laughs> and one dude, one of my boys had Jerry curls. One, one dude from uh, the crowd from Atlanta said, "Who did they do? Easy or somebody?" <laughs> <laughs> Cut up the station, it's about that time for Fila. Most likely he'll smile front if he was stamped by Beehive. It's one in one station only, they got the streets on fire. So please do not touch the dial, cause we finna go live. Yeah, yeah, you know we live from 285, man. And of course, you know it's your boy, Beehive. Radio shout it. Stepping in the building, I got a Memphis 10 legend in this thing. DJ Paul, what's good with it, boss? What up, what up, what up, homie? I mean, feeling good, feeling great, man. I mean, I know you coming in, you just doing shows and all this stuff, tearing up stages. Yeah. Tell me about that. Man, we just rocked the masquerade in ATL, man. It's been a minute since I've been in ATL, so it was great, man. The love was crazy man we had a good time man and uh i got i got to get back down here some more man they've been begging me to come down here for a minute but um i always seem to get booked somewhere else outside of atlanta this and that so always ready always ready to get back to atlanta because atlanta was a lot of people probably don't know atlanta was the first city that that uh blew up three six mafia just us because we came here, man. We came here a long time ago in a Mazda rental car. Me, Juicy J, Coopster, and I think Lord Infamous or whatever. And we had a chick driving us. We squashed up in this car. We came to Atlanta a long time ago in like 1994, I think it was, and started promoting records. And Atlanta been messing with us ever since, man. So it's always good to come back to Atlanta. Everybody for the longest, everybody thought Three Six Mafia was from Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, because it was a lot of love down here for the music, yeah, man. When and the come, crunk music. Exactly. When it comes to the crunk music, I mean, y'all crunk that stuff up like none other. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole sample game that y'all in- incorporated into that was just stupid. You know, folks would take other records, but we would hear y'all take stuff out movies and everything else yeah. and put it into them tracks. But then we would be like, how the hell did they put that 808 up under there like that, oh, man? Yeah, I created that 808. I made that 808 when I was in, uh, like, the eighth grade. Oh, man. I made that 808, you know. So um, it's, it's been a good thing, man. Atlanta been messing. I remember the first show we did in Atlanta was, um, what's the club y'all got at? Is it uh, Bank? You ain't talking about the bounce, is it? Because I recall was y'all at the, the bounce, bounce cranking that thing up. Was That's it in our a banking. big parking lot? It was in the, it's right off 285. And yeah, it's right it off the right, expressway. Yeah, it was across from that Petro over there. Yeah, and uh, it was it's the in bounce. a big parking lot. Yeah, yeah. So funny. We was opening up for MAC-10. And uh, this was back in the day. We was opening up for MAC-10. And um, we didn't even have parking spaces in the back of the club. We had to park in the in the crowd with the rest of the uh, yeah. the fans, you know, the rest of the people. And uh, we went in there. We was walking across the parking lot. It was so funny. We was walking across the parking lot. We had on these black, um, we had on black khaki jeans, mm-hmm. I mean khaki pants, black shirts that said Three Six Mafia. We come from Memphis. We had jerry curls and everything. <laughs> and one dude, one of my boys had jerry curls. One dude from uh, the crowd from Atlanta said, who did they do? Easy or something? <laughs> <laughs> we parked way across the parking lot. We walk in through the front of the door. 
You know, it took years to get that respect. But look, we walk through the front door, we go in there, and we tear it up. We tear it up, and then the stage was wet from the opening acts. Yeah. So while we crunk on the stage, we was even crunker because we slipping. Ooh. So we about to fall. We like man. We like <laughs> <laughs> we wild and cra- we wild as hell on the stage. So it was so crazy. So um, but after that. The show promoter called us back two weeks later yeah. and booked the show. We did that show for free. Yeah. I said, I'm going to do this one for free. I guarantee you we're going to rock it. And then we're going to come back and we're going to get paid for this other one. Cool. And then we came back, and next thing I know, we started doing shows in ATL, man, like every few months or so, man. And it was, it was good. I mean, talking about them early days, man. I mean, jumping out there with that Mystic Style. Yeah, what that's what that we like? was doing, Mystic Style. Tell the club up. How did y'all feel putting Memphis on the map at that time, though? Because as far as the rap scene was concerned, you know we had Ball and G and, you know, a host of others getting busy. But, I mean, the mafia, a hypnotized Count Posse, y'all had about 20 folks in there getting yeah. busy. Yeah. So what was that like coming up with all them creative folk? Man, it was good because, you know, Memphis is a um, musical city. Yeah. Like you said, we had A-Ball and MJG. We had Gangster Pad. Yeah. They probably end up moving down here to Atlanta, huh. but uh, um, it was it was cool because we had a different sound. Mm. You know, our sound was different. We was talking about different stuff. We was talking about you know tearing the club up and hit them and blah blah blah. And it was like our sound was like the mix of um, rock music with rap music. Yeah. So it was crazy, and it um. Atlanta ate it up because Atlanta, you know, they was they was crunk, or at that time they was ready to get crunk. I'm gonna tell you a real funny story. Yeah. One day we came down here when Freaknik was still going on. Uh huh. We drove down here in an Astro van <laughs> with Profit Profit Entertainment logos on the side of the van, and then we we put on these full body suits, mm-hmm. and we uh, had staple guns. And we put posters all up and down Peachtree, all over the street. Yeah. And then we drove back to Memphis, jumped in our real cars, <laughs> which was like uh, 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 candy painted, uh, 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 photo Impalas. Yeah. Yeah. All us jumped in those cars and rolled back down here, scooped up some chicks, blah blah blah. We parlaying, we balling out. And we played like that somebody else did yeah, the promotion. Yeah. We're like, oh, look, they got Christmas mobbing posters all over this place. It's pretty cool. <laughs> the whole time it was us. Exactly. The whole time it was us. And then I never forget, I was on Peachtree right in front of, um, what's this big white hotel that y'all got uh, across the street from that theater? I know what you're talking about over there. Uh, Amigos, the uh, yeah. Amigos did a video in front of that theater. Well, yeah, I know it's Fox. I know it's the Fox, but I don't know the name of that hotel right there. That hotel yeah. right there. I like that hotel. Yeah. That uh we was uh we was right in front of that hotel on Peachtree doing um doing Freak Nick. And I gave a dude a mystic style C D. And he looked at he like, what is this? And he like <laughs> and he threw it out of the car. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> threw it out of the car. I was like, all right, whatever. And I just picked it up and just gave it to the next car. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a year later. We were selling so many records in Atlanta, it was unbelievable. 
what was it like having y'all own label and knowing that y'all started that thing from scratch though? And then doing the production behind it at the same time. It was great, man, because like, you know, back in those days, man, we was uh selling those records what we what we was getting from the record company. Cause you know back in those days CDs was like sixteen ninety nine. That's right. That's so right. So we was getting eight dollars and fifty cents a unit for those records. And we was selling like five hundred thousand, three, four hundred thousand. Uh Lil White, every album we put out on him sold like five hundred, four hundred thousand. So we was making millions and millions of dollars off the independent game. That's why today I still do the yeah. independent game. It ain't eight fifty these days because you know it's like nine ninety, nine ninety nine a CD. So mm-hmm. we do like six dollars or whatever. But it's still that the independent game, man. You know, if you can do it, it costs more money to be independent. It's more work. Yeah. But if you can do it, you make way more money because when you were a major label, you get like. A dollar fifty, dollar sixty a label. Yeah, I mean a, a record, and um, you're independent. You can get like, like I said, six to seven dollars. You can pretty much name your own price. You just don't want to shoot your seven a foot. Exactly, exactly. The creative process oh, behind that music, though, Paul. Was y'all making them tracks first, or did y'all already had the hooks already together? How were y'all coming up with them bangers, man? Most of the time, we made the tracks first. Mm-hmm. We make the tracks first, and uh, then we would come up with the hooks. Uh-huh. It was very seldomly that we would um, make a, a a hook first, and then come up with a a a, a beat. Mm-hmm. But we usually always made the tracks first, and then we just came up to them. So, um, like I make a track, Juicy would make a track, and then uh, me, Juicy, and Lord Infamous wrote most of the hooks. Gangsta Boo wrote a couple. But me, Juicy, and uh, Lord of us wrote most of the hooks once we heard the beat. So basically what we did, we would make a beat in the studio, and it would be like 30 of us in the studio just hanging out, drinking, getting, you know, blazed, blah, 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 and some other things that came in front of the radio. <laughs> and uh, somebody would just pull somebody to the – they would just pull me in just to the side, like, oh, I got an idea. And then we just – so like, oh, I like that, I don't like that, blah, 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 blah. And then it just went from there. I mean, songs like Teddy Club, but when you look up and they trying to ban them in the club because folks was getting their head bust down to the white meat every time it come that. on, what was going through y'all mind when that song took off like that? That song, I'll tell you a funny story about that song. I mean, uh, um, back in the day, we had a couple of clubs. Mm-hmm. They had a Juicy J's Playhouse, and um, and we had, no, we had a Juicy J's Place mm-hmm. and DJ Paul's Playhouse. Yeah, two clubs we had, and uh, one night uh, we had this one night with me and Juicy. Was, we would go to each other's club, yeah, and like uh, guest DJ. Mm-hmm. So like, if Juicy J had his night, I would come and like open up DJ for him. He would do the same for me, and uh, uh, <clears throat> Lord Infamous would be on the mic hyping and doing this, you know, for me. Mm-hmm. So um, one night we left the club and we went to McDonald's. Uh, by my house and uh, by my mama's house. We live with my mama then. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I got an idea for a song. I said, it should be called Tear the Club Up. Because I was like, because we tear the club up when we do, do, we do the show. I saw this dude get killed in the club, and it was a bad thing. Uh, rest his soul. But basically, um, we was leaving the club, and we was in a lobby, and uh, all these dudes got to fighting, 
And then I heard a pop, pop. And uh, everybody just ran, and we didn't know what happened. Everybody ran. It was nobody on the floor. Nobody yeah. was on the floor. And I went to the bathroom, and the dude was up under the sink. And he got shot and went in through his, uh, like, his right side of his body and went to his heart. Ooh. And he was, up under, he was up under the sink, like, uh, uh. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And I was like, uh. I was like, uh, I told Lord, I was like, go get the security. I was like, I think this dude is dying or something. And uh, security, when it got, uh, security came and he really did die. And then I was, we were sitting there, we were sitting eating breakfast, and I was like, um, we tear the club up, man. I was like, we probably should make a song called Tear the Club Up. Yeah. And we made this song, and obviously that song blew up. But, um, yeah, it was a sad time, though. Had to been crazy. I mean, speaking of tearing the club, it was on the up, news and everything. I know. Speaking of tearing the club up, though, it was the beginning and the birth of a style of music. Yeah. That was duplicated many times over, man. Yeah, still been duplicated. Man. Talk crunk. to me about that. I mean, what made y'all say, you know what? We got some with this tear the club up, man. We gonna continue to get bucking this thing. Well, you know what? The, what? It, what? It, what? That all came from is us being DJs. Uh huh. You know, us being DJs. So, um, like, when I would, uh, a lot of my songs I wrote just from DJing in the clubs, those two clubs I told you me and Gigi had. Yeah. Um, I would just chant stuff. Yeah. So, like, I'd be like, I bet you won't hit them. Blah, blah, blah. Just <laughs> and, and whatever they react off of, yeah. I went back the next day in my house and made a song off of it. Uh. So if I was never a DJ in clubs, I couldn't have never came up with that style. You know, that's how that style was created, with us being DJs and just shouting out stuff, and then it just going from there. How did y'all go from DJing to producing, though? Well, the producing came first. Okay. So just how it happened, um, I, I, uh, my brother, my brother uh, gave me some money to uh, get uh, studio equipment, because I come from a, a, a musical family. Uh. I got a, um, my, all my uncles had a gospel group called the Bogard Brothers. Mm -hmm. So I came from a musical family, so, uh, you know, every Sunday, everybody would come to my mama's house, and they'd be playing the guitar and the organ and all this. Mm -hmm. So um, um, I, I always wanted to do music. I was trying to do music ever since I was in, like, the... Fourth, fourth or fifth grade, uh -huh. and I tell you another funny story about ATL. Uh, um, my the person who I was, um, I was his biggest fan probably. He lives in ATL. Hmm. MC Shadi. Yeah, yeah. MC yeah. Shadi, and see, MC Shadi sounded like a kid. Mm. Even though he probably was like twenty some years old at the <laughs> yeah. time, he like I'm in the Shadi and I gotta be dumb. He had a real life voice. <laughs> So I was like, if this little kid can do it, I can do it. <laughs> he wasn't even a kid. I just talked to MC Shadi on a, a Twitter about a week ago. Yeah. But uh, uh, he was a grown man. So I was like, if he can do it, I can do it. So I started trying to do it. My brother put some money behind us. And um, I put some equipment in the layaway. I eventually got my equipment out and um, just started doing it. Mm -hmm. The only reason I became a DJ is because it was a way to get the music out there. Uh -huh. So what I would do is 
I would mix all the hottest records, NWA, blah, 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 and then I sneak one of my songs in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Mixing another hot one, yeah. sneak one of my songs in the middle. And then eventually, by the time I got to volume four, it was just my songs. Uh-huh. And it was me, and it was uh, Lord of My Skinny Pimp, and all those guys. And yeah. from volume 14, I mean volume four, all the way up to volume 16, was just my songs with me, Juicy, and yeah. everybody else. Answer so me this how. question, though, Paul. Was there a time, because when you look up and y'all are making millions, and you know you started off as a young DJ and producer in the club just getting busy, when you realized those dreams, was it what you expected it to be, or was it something that you felt like you didn't sign up for? No, it was way more than I expected it to be. We didn't never, we never would have thought back in those days that we would have made millions of dollars and won an Oscar. Yeah. Come on, you can't even, you can't write, Hollywood can't write that. So it was, uh, it was way more than I thought it was gonna be, you know what I'm saying? Still today, you know, sitting here with you here right now, we're talking about 25 years later. Ain't that many rappers can That's say true. that 25 years later, they still doing it, especially with the amount of music that we put out. So it's it's a lot of rappers that still out 25 years later. Yeah, Not a lot, but it's some. But nobody can say that they made about almost 100 CDs like we did. Between all the people we produced, yeah. even we produced the diamond in the bag for Ludacris. Yeah, we did that video over at the mall out here. I can't remember what mall parking lot we did that. I did a lot of production for Ludacris. Shout out to Ludacris, love him, uh-huh. and just um, some stuff for Titty Boy. Yeah, uh, two chains. Yeah, yeah my yeah. boy, my boy. I've been knowing him since he was Titty Boy. Titty Boy, <laughs> Titty Boy was in the riding and riding spinners video. That's right. That's right. We did that video uh, over by some uh, field one day, mm-hmm. but you know we've been messing with Atlanta for the longest, and for me to still be around after 25 years and still making songs that tell the cover of is unbelievable, man. When y'all were making all of that music, though, was y'all so caught up in the moment of just making all of them records that y'all didn't realize that some of them records was going to be timeless? No, we never thought that. We just wanted to make good music, and we just wanted to keep the records rolling and just um, just keep it rolling. Because like I always say, I'm my biggest fan. Yeah. That's the one thing that keeps me alive, I think, is me being my biggest fan. And um, I basically do it for me and all the hardcore 360 Mafia fans. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't really do it for the money these days or any of that. I just do it for the hardcore fans. And like I always say, there's a lot of uh, musicians that I was a fan of that ain't around no more. You know, old um, uh, soulful singers. Yeah. So... As long as I can uh, breathe and get up and program that drum machine and play that keyboard, I want to keep doing it, you That's know, until right. the end. I got to ask you about a few classics, man. Songs like Late Night Tip, man. I mean, that one crunk, but that was one of them songs that rolled so damn hard yeah. that, I mean, you had to put that thing on repeat and just ride out to it. Yeah, the the, the funny part about it is, it, is when we got the... the um, when we got that major record deal, we started trying different kind of records. Uh-huh. And um, if you remember, Sipping on Scissor one crunk. Yeah. And coming from Tear the Club up to a singer like Sipping on Scissor was a big risk for us. Oh. It was a risk. You know, you you, you, yeah. you look at it like now, it's just a hit yeah. song. 
But if you're in the studio, you'd be like, how are we going to go from hit em and tear the club up to a slow song like Seven on Scissor? Mm. You know, it was scary for us. Yeah. But it worked. I mean, how did that sipping on that scissor come about, man? Because, I mean, you got Pat on that hook doing his thing. You know, you know, we recorded that song in Atlanta. Oh. And I'm going to tell you something. We was on the way to Atlanta. It was the year y'all had, what y'all had here, the Super Bowl? Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. Yeah. And it was snowing like a fool. <laughs> so we almost died making that song. We came over a bridge. This, this boy, back in the day, I would give my boys, like, whoever would be like, hey, Paul, I need to borrow a couple of dollars. And when they had a hand out for a couple of dollars, I would give them keys to that tour bus or that, <laughs> with a tour van at that time. Yeah. I'd be like, here you go, your couple of dollars. I need you to drive me down to Atlanta. I need you to, there you go. Time to work. Time to work. So um, he was driving fast, and um, <laughs> we came over a bridge. Uh-huh. And, you know, when the snow, you can't speed over the bridge because it ain't got the foundation up under, yeah. so it'd be more icier. Icy. We came over that bridge. Truck we was in a navigator, a navigator that uh, we had back in the day. It yeah. started spinning all over the place, spun over into the oncoming lane. We was on the way to Atlanta to record at Pimp C house. Pimp C lived in Atlanta then. Mm. He had a big old house across the street from uh, what's the big R and B singer y'all got from here? Uh, Make it last forever. What's uh, 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 Keith Sweat. Keith Sweat. Yeah, yeah. So um. It spun over the other lane. A rig was coming at us, blowing on like, duh, duh. I'm like, holy. Hey, my boy trying to crank that like, I'm like, man, this is some straight TV right here. Me and Juicy got out the truck. Yeah. We just got out the truck and started running. I dropped my scat pager, which is terrible. <laughs> I dropped it in the snow. He finally crunked it up right before the rig came and drove off back into the grass. And the rig like, we get to Atlanta. I don't even know how to get in touch with Pimp C because I lost the sky page. So I finally, I think uh, we went to and did an interview on the radio station, and I shouted him out, and he came up to the radio station. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think it was the same radio station too, but (laughs) we – he he came up to the radio station. He took us to the house. It was the drought. The house was on a big old hill, and the driveway was full of snow, so we couldn't even drive up the driveway. Yeah. So me, Juicy, Pimp C, Bum B, all of us made a, um, a chain. Yeah. Bum B held onto the tree, <laughs> and we made a chain, and we pulled each other up. So first thing we did when we got in the house, we got, you know, messed yeah, up. Right. We got messed up, and then we just started talking. And then I played the beat for him, and we had the hook in there already, and then we did the song, and then we left. But when we left, we slid down the driveway. I was like, all right, man, I'm out. And we just, we just slid down the driveway, had fun, and we got about it. The funny part about it is on the way back, mm-hmm. I saw some skid marks by the bridge way somewhere down the highway. And I was like, hey, man, I was like, this is like what we had to wreck at. I was like, pull up. We pull up. I found the sky pager. Full of snow, wet as hell. <laughs> Found the sky pager, man. So crazy. crazy. So crazy. But, you know, I was like, I always said when you had to put a lot of work into a song, mm-hmm. that it's going to be worth it. Yeah, yeah. And that song was worth it. I mean, was did y'all know when y'all got in there and put that thing together that that was going to be a, another classic for the catalog? 
I didn't, we didn't know at that time. Cause like I said, we were just trying something with it being a slow song. You yeah. know, it was a real slow song. And we coming from a crunk, crunk singles and crunk style. I didn't know what it was going to do. But I was like, this song hard. Yeah, yeah. I was like, it probably, it probably ain't a first single, but it's a single. Yeah. And then when the record label heard, the record label was like, this, this is the song we want to go with. The, uh, when we was with um, Columbia at that time. They was like, this is the one we want to go with. And I was like, oh, what's your name? <laughs> and then the, the good part about it was it was right after Big Pimpin'. Yeah, yeah. It was right that after way. Big Pimpin'. Yes, sir. I mean, from an industry's perspective, how do you maintain the heat with the records? You see what I'm saying? Without getting cold. Did y'all feel like y'all had to keep on putting out the music to stay relevant? Or did y'all wait for certain periods and times to drop? No, nah, we, just, we just wanted to keep putting out our records, um, we didn't. We didn't never wait. We always put out one. I guess it was every few years, or a couple of years, or whatever. And we just, we just wanted to put out records because we worked twenty four hours. Yeah. So we had a studio, the studio in Memphis, and uh, we just worked around the clock, pretty much anyways. Mm-hmm. And we had tons and tons of records. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we would take a break. We worked for like six months, and then the rest of the year we would just hang out and just pretty much barbecue. <laughs> pretty much barbecue at my house and just, just hang out. So sometimes we would work a long time. Sometimes we wouldn't. So we just had plenty of records, and it was good. Because, you know, back in those days, you know, we was um, we was with Columbia, this and that, and they was like, you know, whenever you want to bring out a record, we got these big advancements, which was millions of dollars. And I was like, man, we need to go ahead and do this record. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do that record. We recorded it at our own studio, so we yeah. didn't spend no money. We recorded it now, get them big checks, sell millions of records, and just chill the rest of the year, man, and just ride around Memphis and Maybachs and Rolls Royces, <laughs> which we was the to... only ones with those. Oh, did it ever get to a point, though, Paul, where you felt like this is just too easy? Already, You might hear something you're like, man, let me go ahead and just put this together, send this out, and uh, make another hit right quick. No, it didn't because you know I don't I don't know why we, it it should have got to that point. You would think it would, yeah, but it didn't though. It was like because we was having so much fun doing it. We was having so much fun doing, it, so it was never really like we concentrated too hard on it. We just really just like went in and did the songs. And back in those days, you didn't have email, so you had to FedEx a DAT, a DAT player, yeah. Yeah. To New York, to the record label, and we would just send it to them. And every song we sent them, they liked. And I was like, eh, whatever, worst check. Being a label head and having all of them artists on the label, how did you deal with the egos and trying to make everybody happy and keep everything as a cohesive, uh, cohesive unit? So well, okay, that, that was the hard part. That's when it only got. That's when it got hard because we were so young. So we were so young, and we was making so much money, and then we was. Um, you know, we was getting high and all this. So, um that that made it that made it hard. Mm-hmm. But for the most part we was all family and everybody was happy, you know, but um that made it get hard from time to time because somebody might write a song that somebody don't like or this and that and then it would cause a little conflict in the studio. But we were always figured out at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We always figured out at the end. We were always just Come up with uh, what's 
was good. And then we would do this one thing where we would bring like 40 friends in the studio mm. and we would play the whole album. Mm. And we would be like, don't put your names on this list. Just say what song you like and uh, put how many stars beside it that you liked or whatever. And um, and just put it in there. So would nobody feel guilty if they didn't like a song, they put one star or yeah. whatever. So, um, they would put their, all, all their, um, their uh, tags in the bag at the end, mm-hmm. and then that's how we would uh, go by what songs would stay on the album, yeah. what song would be the single, and this and that. And then we would send um, songs to DJs. Mm-hmm. So Sony had a list of all the popular DJs. Like one of them uh, coming out of Houston was a uh, was a uh, Michael Watts. Mm-hmm. We had Greg Street. Yeah. We had uh, different DJs that the major, the label did. Mm-hmm. And they would send them to those DJs and they'd be like, do you like this song? Yes or no, blah, blah, And mm-hmm. then that's how we would pick them. Now, on another note with the collabs, man, that player while you're hating with the hot boys, man, how did that joint come about? Because that was another one of my favorites right there, too. That was a real funny story. Like, before I knew about Cash Money, well, I knew about Cash Money, but before I knew about Hot Boys, mm-hmm. Wayne and Juvenile and yeah. all them, I used to listen to this uh, group that they had that was called, oh, Jesus, what was their name? It was another group. It was like the first group that was signed to Cash Money. UNLV? UNLV. Yeah. I used to listen to UNLV. If you remember... Later on, Cash Money redid one of UNLV's songs. That that dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah. So I was a fan of UNLV, and I, I called, uh, I contacted Birdman. I was like, I want to do a song with UNLV. And at that time, I think that they was, uh, wasn't with the label no more. Uh-huh. And he was like, um, you know, they're not around no more, but I got my new group, blah, blah, blah. Cash Money, Wayne, blah, 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 and this and that. And uh, I checked them out, and they was dope, obviously. And I was like, let's do that. And I I, I got them to come to Memphis. They came to Memphis. Mm-hmm. And um, we did that song. We did a bunch of songs. We did probably like three songs. Uh-huh. Three songs while they was up there. And I never forget, I always tell the story every time I go to TGI Fridays. <laughs> um Birdman favorite dish at TGI Fridays was the Cajun chicken pasta. Uh-huh. So um every time I go to TGI Fridays and order the T- uh, the Cajun chicken pasta, I always tell people how Birdman put me on that cuz we had TGI Fridays would deliver to our studio. And um they 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 never knew that they was delivering to Lil Wayne <laughs> and uh, you know Birdman and Juvenile yeah. and all that. Yeah. But um, it was cool, and then we did that song. We did the video, man. It was crazy. We did a bunch of songs with them, man. A bunch of songs. I mean, the international players anthem though with Cass. I mean, UGK together. I mean, it was a beautiful thing to see everybody come together on that track. But I ain't gonna lie though, that boy Pat did that track some justice too, man. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that that, that kind of caught me off guard because I like now Pat he was hell on there too. But then the track was so damn hard, it just didn't matter. Like yeah. let's run everything back. Yeah, yeah. How did them jumps come about? When we did uh um when we did uh um ballers, uh-huh. 
you know, baller. We be on some twinkies, twinkies. That song was where we got the sip it on scissor hook from. Uh. Yeah, if you listen to that verse, you, mm-hmm. you hear it says, sipping on some scissor, bumping a scissor, That's where we got that from. So that song right there was extra great for us. Yeah, yeah. Because it doubled as a couple of hits. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doubled as a couple of hits. So yeah. that was great. Now, when you hooked up with UGK and Cass, though, how was that when y'all came together for the International Players Anthem? We did International Players Anthem. This is how that happened. Um... Uh, Project Pat had an album that I I produced the track Choose You For. That's right. And then um, Sony didn't really promote the album, that that single. They promoted the album. They didn't really promote the single. So the single only did a little something. They killed it in Memphis, but it didn't do nothing really to the rest of the world. So Pimp C was in jail at that time. Pimp C was in jail, and uh, Pimp C called me. And he's like, when I get out of jail, I'm coming to your house in L.A., and I want to redo that song. He said, don't change nothing from the beat. I want it to be just like it is. <laughs> I still did a couple of little changes, but that's just me. Yeah. But um, he came to my When he got out of jail, he came to my house, and um, he had an Atlanta artist with him. I can't think. I can't remember the boy's name, but he was a little kid at that time. He was signed to Too Short, I think. What was that boy name? Lou, Lou something, Lou something. But I can't remember. He signed Two Show because you know Two Show was down. Yeah, I remember Two Show being down here. Yeah, so uh, um, he brought he brought uh, him with him to the studio, and um, we did um, Choose You. We did the Players Anthem. And Sony, that was like around the time when Three Six Mafia were like super super high. So uh, Sony was like. they can't have y'all on a single, but y'all can be on the album. So they end up choosing Outkast mm-hmm. to be on the single, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I get paid off the record regardless. So exactly. I'm like, yeah, put the, put the biggest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so uh, we went and did the video. We did the video in L.A. And um, the players had the video. And that was UGK's first number one single. But the cool part about it, is Sippin' on Scissor was our first number one single. That's told. So it's like yeah, we yeah. rubbed each other, you know, exactly. we scratched each other back. Exactly. So it was cool. That's crazy. I got to take it to another area, though, man. I mean, that choices, movies, soundtrack, both equally hard as hell, man. What was it like putting that thing together? Choices movie, we was um, we were sitting back looking how, um, how they did the Murder Was the Case movie. Uh. Murder was the case, I think it was like 20 minutes long or something. Mm-hmm. So we went and filmed uh, a little movie, The Choices. The original one was maybe like 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then we showed it to some people, and people loved it. So I was like, man, we should make this movie longer and really sell it. Mm-hmm. So we made it longer. We made it into, we went and made it into a full movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, we did a joint venture deal with uh, Sony. And back in those days, DVDs was $20. So we did a 10-10 split. And we ended up selling about 300,000 copies of that DVD. We got a plaque at the house that said double platinum. But you go double platinum on DVDs and you sold uh, 200. Yeah. So um, 
I don't know how many is unsold by now, but we put it out and it blew up and it just became a, a hood anthem. It was like the Scarface almost for for rap movies or whatever. It was crazy. What was it that gave y'all the guts to go ahead and say, you know what, we're going to put up this money and put this movie out like this and just sit down. And the time to sit down and write it. Was that during the off time or how do y'all do that? Yeah, it was, we wrote it during off time. And I mean, we we made that movie like fresh off Sipping on Scissor. Uh-huh. So at that time, like anything we put out, people was going to buy. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, a movie would be great to do right now. And... We did because we always wanted to get into the Hollywood scene anyway. Mm-hmm. And that, that movie, you know, obviously made our way to the Oscar. I mean, tell me about that Oscar, man. I mean, what was that feeling like, man? And then how did, I mean, that song even come up, come about, uh, Hard Out Here for a Pimp? It was crazy. Um, I I had a brother back in the day that um he got killed in, like, 91. But he was a pimp, and he got killed by one of his girls that had a trick that um that uh like fell in love with her or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they set my brother up, and they killed my brother. But uh, we kind of just wrote it off the history of being in Memphis and all the pimping that goes on there, and the story of my brother and this and that, and the script from the movie that they gave us. Mm-hmm. Gave us a script from the movie. So between, you know, the history of being in a city like that, uh, in Memphis, that was home, you know, pretty much home of Pippin, like that at that time, outside of like San Francisco, this and that, where Iceberg Slim and all them came from. Mm-hmm. It was pretty easy to write. Mm. What was going through your mind when you look up and you won an Oscar for that thing, though? That, that was another story. That was crazy. <laughs> You know, that was crazy. It was just, uh, um, it was unbelievable, man, you know, um, to accomplish something like that. You know, and I thought all the other songs was great. Um, I love the the Burr York song for the movie Crash, you know, and um, I loved all the Dolly Parton song. Obviously, obviously, we all grew up loving Dolly Parton. Yeah. And, um... It was it was great, but when we won it, you know, I really couldn't believe it. You know, still today, I sit back and I really don't believe it. What makes it so hard to believe though? Because after all of that success and coming from the hood and just blowing up like that, I mean, that should have just been another one in the can by then. Yeah, but uh, I, I, yeah, a Grammy should have been another one in the can because that's for music, not an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. We don't win Oscars. Still today, we're the only rap group that ever won Oscar. We, I don't know if we might ever, ever be the only one. I don't know. You never know. It's, it's, it's hard to get. But um, that, was, that was the main thing because it was for movies. I mean, you know, we wasn't into movies. We was into music. Mm-hmm. So for us to get that, that, that was crazy. Now, another question, though. That reality show, that show was funny as hell. Okay, yeah. what made y'all get into reality before it was even trending like it is now? And I mean, how were y'all able to kind of script that thing to make it come across so funny? Yeah. Oh, I, what I used to do was I always wanted us to have a, a TV show, uh-huh. and because uh, I grew up on uh, Sanford and Son. That's right. And I used to always want us to have a TV show, so I basically just filmed us just hanging out. 
in the studio uh, around Memphis doing that, and um, I gave it to my lawyer, and I was like, I want you to get us to some um, some uh, uh, some uh, networks mm-hmm. and see if we can uh, get a deal or something from it. And at that time, people wasn't doing reality shows like that. People actually got mad at Three Six Mafia for doing that reality show. It was like, oh, I can't believe it, because you know everybody always wants you to stay underground. Yeah. They don't like. <laughs> so they're like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Oh, oh, oh my God, they was hating like a fool. And now people beg to have reality shows. Yeah. Yeah. But at that time, they didn't like it, and they thought that we wasn't keeping it real by having a reality show. But, uh, you know, once they watched it, they was like, you know, it's funny and it's crazy. And, um, you know, it ended up blowing up. But uh, from the beginning, with, they was hating on it. Speaking of the hate, man, how did y'all deal with the hate in the game from the beginning all the way up through? Cause I know you got that motivated song. That was another one of my bangers yeah. that I love. You see what I'm saying? When I'm dealing with my personal hate, yeah. how did y'all deal with y'all? Well, we just wrote songs off of it. Yeah, that's the best way to deal with uh with hate is just um build off of it, you know, because that that the hate motivate. You know, if you um if you got people hating on you, then that means you're doing something right. You know, obviously, if you ain't got nobody hating on you, then some ain't ain't real. Somebody ain't right right there. So we just used it as a um, motivation to write songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any obstacles did y'all see coming up in the game? Because, I mean, I know you say y'all jumped out there and stuff kind of took off, but what were the obstacles that you had trying to keep everything afloat so you could make it to that next advance? The, the, the hardest obstacle was us being from the South. You know, being uh, us being from the South, because at that time, everybody that was really doing it was uh, from, like, New York or L.A. You know, you had your few that was, like, the ghetto boys down in Texas and um, Luke Skywalker and Two-Line crew down in Miami. But for the most part, part, it was nobody doing it in the South like that, except, like, Outkast. You know, we had Outkast. And we had, uh, what's my guy name? I put my hand up on my hip. When I did, <laughs> yeah, it was freak nasty, wasn't it? Yeah. But for the most part, it wasn't a lot of uh, artists out the Mid-South yeah. that was doing it at that time. So that was the hardest part for us. But how we came up over that is we just put our, our own money behind our records. Yeah. Now, during that time, though, man, the competition was fierce. I mean, you had artists in the South, East, West, Midwest, all over the place that were just kind of crazy. And how was that for y'all trying to compete in that marketplace? Because you got the folks on the East Coast doing their thing on the West, but in the South, folks were still bringing it now. Yeah. How was it during that golden era of hip-hop for y'all when y'all looked up? It was crazy for us because uh, I'm going to tell you what started blowing us up. It was a um, jukebox. Mm. You remember jukebox? Mm. Jukebox where you could uh, pay to view videos, whatever it was back in the day. They was out of Miami. And uh, people would uh, request the hell out of Tether Club of videos. And we would be like one of the only like little southern. It was other southern videos. Like I said, you know, we had Outkast and all that. But uh, shout out to Outkast, love Outkast. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but 
we was one of the only well we was the only video that was on that craziness mm-hmm. that was coming out so we had the video on the video we had these wrestling masks on because i was all i was into wrestling yeah real tough at that yeah. time so i got this lady to make us these wrestling masks mm-hmm. and um that video right there being on that jukebox is what really really blew us up and that's what made us get ahead of some of the other artists that we was um up against at that time did y'all, when y'all would listen to the other artists, though, did y'all feel any pressure to perform? Nah. No. And then how did y'all feel about y'all production up against everybody else's production? Because y'all had some crazy stuff coming out of there, man. Yeah, I, well, I thought ours was the best. Yeah. And I was like, I knew what we had going was a, 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 a dope product. Did y'all have a lot of folks trying to get that sound from y'all? Well, everybody took that sound from us. <laughs> Everybody take that sound. They still take that sound. Yeah. Even to the day, that sound is still uh, around. And it's come, it's re-coming back around, as I started to notice. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you see the youngsters out here kind of sounding like a young 3C? I actually like it, you know. I actually like it, you know. I like I like for them to keep the sound around. One of my favorite um, rappers out right now is um, Waka Flocka. Yeah. And Waka Flocka, I feel, was the first person to kind of re-bring it back around. Uh-huh. And I like that. We actually did a song with Waka back in the day, and um, I'm a Waka fan. I'm a Waka fan, and um, I like how he brought it back around. Mm-hmm. You know, he brought it back around to, like, a, a major way. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. So, I mean, lastly, the passing of Lord and Kutska, man. Yeah. How had that affected you when that stuff hit? Oh man, it, it affected me a lot because um both of them passed at the same age. Mm. They're the same age. Same age I am now. Yeah. Which makes it even weirder. But uh, um they um there was uh, the a lot of the new album I wrote toward them. Mm-hmm. Not not toward Cooper because Cooper was still alive when I wrote the album. But to toward Lord Elfman's the passing of him and the passing of a lot of our other personal friends who as well died around the same age or whatever that we went to school with. So uh, I put a little more feeling into this album than basically just the regular talk, talk, talk Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, rappers tend to do. I I put... um, a little more feeling into it and talked about a, a lot of more personal situations that I've been going through the last, you know, two years. The last two years I done paid for four funerals. Funerals ain't cheap. Funerals ain't cheap. But um the yeah, I paid for four funerals in the last uh two years and um and that's that's what influenced a lot of the new album, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, all of the stuff that went on with all the friends and family. I can dig it. Master Evil, the tour, all that good stuff, man. Anything else you want to say about it? Man, you know, just um, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DJ Paul K O M King of Memphis, and uh, man, I love y'all. ATL, keep. Pro- 
promoting your boy and uh, keep uh, supporting your boy. And, uh, man, I love y'all. And for everybody else that's out there listening, man, love y'all too, man. I'm going to keep doing it for y'all. 100, man. Well, Paul, appreciate you coming through this thing, bro. Yeah. Already. Yeah. Wish I appreciate you, you the best. Having. Much success. Appreciate Beehive Radio, shout it. DJ Paul, let go.